Non-FicPod is proud to be part of Wild Words Festival, the laid-back literary festival that COVID can't spoil. Running from the 3rd of June to the 5th of June 2022, just outside Potter's Bar, Wild Words Fest has a lineup that covers sci-fi and popular science, romance and crime, history and thrillers, theatre and poetry, and also has a dedicated kids' tent with an exciting programme aimed at pre-teen book fiends. There will be hot street food and cool camping, British Sign Language interpreters and relaxed performances, a pop-up art gallery and an exciting nature trail. If all that sounds like your kind of jam, visit wildwordsfest.com and get 10% off all tickets with the code NONFICPOD. And there's an extra 10% early bird discount until the end of February. So book soon for the best prices. That's wildwordsfest.com with the code NONFICPOD. And now to this episode of NONFICPOD, where we're talking bees versus wasps, the ethical case for genetic modification, and why large herbivores are ecological engineers. My guest, Rebecca Nesbitt, studies ecology, conservation ethics, food security, crop biotechnology, climate change, science policy and citizen science. In her previous book, Is That Fish in Your Tomato?, she explored the science and ethics of genetic modification. In her latest book, Tickets for the Ark, out on the 17th of February, Rebecca looks at what we choose to save in this age of extinction and how we should decide. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you. So first things first, are we currently undergoing a mass extinction event? There's certainly evidence that that's true. It seems that the rates of extinction are up to a thousand times what we would expect from the background in the fossil record. So humans are definitely having an impact on nature. But as you point out in the book, even saying that humans having an effect on nature sets up a kind of false dichotomy. Absolutely. And it's a relatively recent outlook. It's sort of embedded in Judeo-Christian worldviews, but to lots of indigenous cultures, it's completely alien. Many indigenous languages don't have a word for wild because they have no experience of being separate from nature. And of course, we evolved as part of nature. So it's completely logical that uh, we are entwined with nature. Yeah, I mean, this idea of nature versus human, when humans are part of the natural world, is something that's woven through your book. And you make a really compelling case that there's no such thing as pristine wilderness. And to try and go back to some idea of an unspoilt nature, which is generally the nature that we think our grandparents remember, is not really possible and possibly even unethical. What do you think we should be aiming for instead? I think that's very much open to debate. And it would be good to have lots and lots of different voices in that debate because we all have a stake in what the world should look like. Uh, and this needs to be integrated in all sorts of other discussions about inequality, for example, because our well-being is so entwined with nature. If we think about what do we want tomorrow to look like, that is a question that applies to human society, to what we want the natural world to look like. And these two things are completely interconnected. And probably there will be very different answers in different places. What we want the inner city environment to be like, no doubt has nature in it, but that's going to come out as very different to what we want our farmland to look like, for example, and areas that are much more left wild to nature, which we lots of us probably want to visit. We want to know they're there. They bring all sorts of benefits. They're just not necessarily exactly resembling what they did in the past. 
Yeah, I was stunned by the statistic that you mentioned that um, we have about the same amount of woodland as there was in the 1300s in the British Isles. As you're talking about that, um, I want to go on to a question I was going to ask later, which is the sharing versus sparing debate. So there's an argument that we should be leaving about half of our world free for nature. And you argue that that is far too homogeneous an outlook. Can you tell listeners a bit about the sharing versus sparing debate and why it might not be as simple as one or the other? I think this is one of the most fascinating debates. And it's actually what got me interested in all this, because there's a lot of call for organic farming, for example, which on average is much better for wildlife than very intensive farming. But it also, on average, takes more land. So what do we want? More land that is free, available for nature and the rest of it in very intensive farming? Or do we want more farmland with more wildlife on, but less space for nature in other forms? And some species will benefit from each of these approaches. The farmland birds like the yellowhammer we're all very familiar with will benefit from that sharing. So farmland that is um, wildlife friendly, uh, the likes of the Scottish crossbill, which has very niche habitat requirements, will never live on farmland. However, wildlife friendly you make it, that, that habitat just isn't suitable for it. So those um, kind of uh, specialist species will do much better under a sparing scenario. However, we don't just have to go down the direction of one or the other. There are all sorts of different ways that we can manage our um, environments or not manage them or have nature to be more free-willed, uh, let it follow its own course, as the rewilding debate would advocate. Um, and we don't need to make single policies. We don't need to say one is better than the other. In each particular situation, we can say, well, what is right for this environment, for the people who are living in this environment? When it comes to rewilding, one of the fantastic examples that you open the book with is in Siberia. I have a couple of questions about that. So first of all, you talk a lot about large herbivores. Why are large herbivores so important in terms of essentially managing or engineering wilder habitats? Large herbivores can have such a huge effect on habitats. Um, we see this with uh, elephants, for example, as well as with the um, extinct or very much declined species of large herbivore. Uh, because they're so big, they can impact a habitat so much. They can, for example, uh, push down trees, stop trees from growing. So you're coming out with a very, very different habitat with either small pockets of trees or far fewer trees than if you have the forests allowed to grow. Um, and there are some ecologists who are arguing that it, the prehistoric vision of Europe is actually much less forested than we are led to believe because of herbivores roaming very widely and keeping the shrubs and the trees very low. There's lots of debates about that, but it is just interesting to think about the huge impact that these herbivores can have. Yeah, I mean, the idea of um, building a, a sort of a permafrost park, is it the Pleistocene Park? I can't remember which era it's named for. It, yes, Pleistocene yes. Park. Yes. And and how the gentleman running that said, uh, if someone could just get him a woolly elephant, he'd be fine. Um, but why is permafrost so important, um, even though it's much less 
glamorous than the rainforest if we're talking about not just diversity of species for the species sake but also for the sake of the climate. Absolutely so much carbon is stored in soils whether this is in the permafrost or in Britain's peat bogs for example and whilst of course forests have a huge role to play in slowing down climate change actually sometimes an unforested area captures more carbon than a forest because it's all being stored in the soil. Yeah, when I read the point that you made about peat bogs and the fact that trees will suck up all of the water that allows those peat bogs to essentially to stay stable and remain as carbon sinks, it really did change my view of you know trees being the the ultimate trees and pandas being essentially <laughs> the uh, the motifs that we usually go for in in conservation and wilderness we, we need pandas and we need trees um there are some species that get a really bad rap so we're all very keen on saving bees and, and there's nothing wrong with that but you make a really impassioned plea for us uh, thinking again about how we feel about wasps Absolutely. Not only are these fascinating creatures, uh, some species of which share lots of the characteristics that we love about bees, they are living in these social societies. We love the idea of bees of working for the good of the hive. Um, social wasps do the same. And also they bring lots of the benefits that bees do. For example, they are good pollinators. Wasps are also very, very good at pest control. Aphids can breed at just incredible rates. An aphid can be born pregnant because they can clone themselves. They don't even need to mate. So if they just continued unchecked, then we'd all be sleeping in a blanket of aphids, whereas wasps will eat the aphids. And so they are providing a really essential service for our agriculture. And of course, there are so many different species of bees and wasps. We're not just talking about the honeybee, the social wasps that terrorise your picnics. There's also lots of solitary bees, um, lots of solitary wasps, including parasitic wasps, which also provide a pest control service because if the wasp is parasitising a caterpillar that is eating your vegetables, then that caterpillar may well hatch into a wasp, not a butterfly. So the cycle of more and more caterpillars on your cabbages won't continue. Yes, having looked at my cabbage patch, which is very sad and entirely lacy at this point, <laughs> due to, I think, probably slugs at this time of the year. But yes, I, I never have any joy with brassicas. And uh, I've been wondering what to do about it. And now I've decided that, yeah, wasps are definitely my friends. And also when you describe things as a blanket of aphids, that that's sounds like a, a pretty good description of my garden. Um, <laughs> you also make uh, one of the other arguments that you make, that again, I think is fairly counterintuitive given the debate that we've heard so much of, uh, is the idea that genetically modified tree species, for example, can be extremely useful. So some of the ways that we're Trying to, that humans are trying to help other species adapt to climate change is by either moving them or selectively breeding them so that they're in either better habitats or more able to withstand the change in those habitats. Uh, but you mentioned a tree species that, you know, there are two, com not competing, but two complementary programs to help its resistance, one which is through selective breeding and another which is direct genetic modification. So how much of a role is there for technologies like genetic modification to help with diversity? There are plenty of species who could benefit from genetic modification, or potentially this is their only option. If we have, for example, 
introduce diseases that they are not resistant to, then small populations could be completely wiped out. We therefore have an interesting dilemma of what do we want? Do we want to have this species, which has some small altered genetics in, or do we think actually, well, that's not the original species, we're happy to lose it? There is no right answer there. But again, there's no intrinsic reason why humans can't modify an animal or a plant's genetics, whether they do that in the lab or through uh, interbreeding. There's all sorts of practical challenges here, um, both for more traditional breeding and for newer techniques such as CRISPR. For example, how do we know that this species is not going to cause problems that we are unaware of. Any intervention you have has potential unintended consequences. So everything needs to be considered very, very carefully. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the messages that I took away very strongly. It's the idea that there are so many unintended and unforeseeable consequences to all sorts of things in nature. And the fact that we appear to be causing a thousandfold uh, greater mass extinction event is definitely to do with some of the choices that we've made, but we can't be guaranteeing that other choices we're making aren't also going to be problematic. So far, I've mainly stuck to land, but of course land is not the only place we're wanting to protect. Two thirds of the, the planet is underwater. And humans have actually provided surprising new habitats. Speaking of unintended consequences, things like abandoned oil rigs have become thriving uh, cultures, thriving ecosystems. And you also mentioned uh, Jason DeKairis Taylor's sculpture parks, which I've been lucky enough to dive in one of. And um, what have we left, intentionally or otherwise, on the seabed? I am incredibly jealous that you have dived in one of these sculpture parks, because that's one thing we've left on the seabed is artwork. And that artwork has then become encrusted with corals, become homes for fish, adapted the animals, plants, corals of the seabed in all sorts of interesting ways. We have put oil rigs on the bed of the sea, ships have sunk, which have also made interesting diving sites and valuable habitats for corals. We've put artificial reefs in the hope that corals will grow on those. We've put structures to try and protect the coastline from erosion. Uh, we've also used it as a dumping ground and not always kept very good records of what we've dumped at the bottom of the sea. So we don't even really know how much waste is out there. Well, the one that I've dived is in Lanzarote. Uh, so if anyone's listening in Europe, I think that's our closest available one. Um, but I'm very keen to go back in a few years and see how it has changed. But what is it about beyond just, you know, giving somebody like me uh, something pretty to look at? What is it about the seabed that makes it, again, so important, not just in terms of conservation, but also the climate? It is easy to forget how interconnected our lives are with the bottom of the sea, because a huge amount of carbon is stored at the bottom of the sea, including when species such as whales die sink to the bottom and remain there. That carbon is locked up really, really long term. And so it is taking carbon from the atmosphere, from the surface, sinking it down to the depths and keeping it there. So you do not think about whales, for example, being useful in the struggle against climate change. But 
this is one way to store carbon when they're alive and when they're dead. Yeah, I had never thought of whale carcasses as a, as an important carbon sink because this book has opened my eyes to just how broad the debate is and just how many potential solutions there are uh, and thus also how many sort of chances for uh, unintended consequences there are when we think about conservation. So what do we need to think of conservation as rather than, you know, simply saving the the photogenic species? How would you like to see that debate evolve? I would like to think broadly about how conservation affects people and affects people very differently and also animals. Traditionally, conservation has been ambivalent at best about the lives of individual animals. Uh, the species have been prioritised over the individual and uh, you're seen as sentimental if you're worried too much about the individual animal. And I would like to see that evolve. I would like people to think about the consequences of all conservation actions for the well-being of humans and of animals. Yeah, I mean, you talk about tilapia, although they are classified as invasive in many places, they are essentially a boon, particularly to things like food security and women's employment. Do we need to completely rethink this sometimes xenophobic view of invasive versus naturally occurring species? Definitely, because sometimes conservation has adopted this approach that some species don't belong here. If it wasn't there at some particular time in the past, people take that baseline to be different. Uh, It It's always arbitrary, whatever baseline you take, and we decide if it wasn't there, then we don't want it. But not only is that flawed, because when do you set that arbitrary baseline? Species are constantly moving. That's part of life. But also, it can be very wasteful if we end up getting rid of species that actually we're not doing any harm, because we can think of lots of species in the UK, for example, such as the little owl, the sweet chestnut, that have been introduced, but actually they're not doing any harm and they're, they become valued parts of our wildlife. So we have the potential to waste resources, to miss conservation opportunities, I'm thinking here of the likes of the Mandarin duck, which is very well established in the UK, not doing so well in its native range. Now we have a significant proportion of the world's population. Um, And there are all sorts of potential negative animal welfare consequences of eradicating um, introduced animals. I'm not at all saying that we should never do this. Often, for example, rats introduced to islands can cause great consequences, extinctions, particularly of seabirds. But we should just think carefully about the the possible consequences of trying to eradicate these so-called non-native species um, and whether actually those negative consequences are way up against the benefits that we're bringing See, now I feel slightly guilty because one of my other dives is in Raysbury, which is a rather large muddy pond just near Heathrow. Um, and they have uh, non, well, non-native, well, non except I guess they are now, uh, signal crayfish. And every August there is a bit of a, a trip to go and catch as many signal crayfish as possible and, and then barbecue them. <laughs> but because I, I'm such an inept diver, I don't think they're at much danger from me. 
<laughs> when I think about it, I, I am def- definitely more of an invader in race breathing than they are. <laughs> How do I we think, decide? Um, one interesting thing about signal crayfish is they were intentionally introduced to Europe. Um, and one of the reasons was for food. In Sweden, for example, they love to eat crayfish. When the native crayfish declined, well, here's our solution. We have signal crayfish to eat. And there's nothing wrong with um, eating wild species. There's certainly nothing wrong with eating signal crayfish with lots of butter. Um, I can definitely <laughs> attest to that. But I don't think I got back as many calories as I expended trying to catch them. <laughs> so how do we decide? What are some of the things that can allow us to weigh up whether or not a species is useful in this niche is is on balance good for this niche versus problematic in this niche you mentioned rats causing extinctions that's a a fairly straightforward uh, metric but how can we look at individual species or even individuals and say this is the right place for this species to be it is a huge challenge because we're always acting on uncertainty. We have no idea of the long-term impacts on so many other species and potentially on people. We also have the situation that sometimes it is feasible to eradicate a species not long after it's been introduced when the population is low, but not when it has become very widespread. So if we don't act early when there's inadequate evidence, then we've missed our chance. So I think as with so many things, we always have to embrace uncertainty, acknowledge when we're acting on uncertainty, and just be open about what we're using to make our decisions. Uh, Make sure that we collect evidence, but don't fall into the trap of spending all our resources collecting evidence and then never acting on that evidence. One thing I would say is actually it's good to bring more people into these conversations. Uh, Particularly overseas, there is a huge danger that Western scientists, for example, think they know best. They go in, do some research, either don't involve local people or um, involvement at a very low level. So just parachute in, do their research, maybe make policy decisions and leave, extracting that information. So using the knowledge of local people and also respecting their views, that would be an important way to change the way we make decisions. So I have a question about essentially whether or not diversity in and of itself is something to aim for. And I prompted by a previous episode uh, with Emily Mayhew, we talked about the fact that we're more likely to have potatoes on Mars than bananas on Earth in the next century, because we have such a broad set of potato species that can thrive in so many different niches, whereas the banana we see in the, the supermarkets is, is more or less a, a clone. Um, each and every one comes from a, a cloned plant. Is that too simplistic a way of looking at it, that diversity good monocultures or very narrow genetic pools bad? That's absolutely a very good point. In And it's the same in wild species, that sometimes if a species genetics just drops too low, it's not so diverse, then that population probably can't survive. In particular, if a new disease is introduced, for example, and all those individuals are susceptible, then 
that might be the end for that population. So diversity within species, between species, certainly provides a bit of a buffer against a future in some situations. It is more complex than that. Domestic species, for example, that there is a reason why we have often really reduced down the genetics of certain cultivated species, because we've created something that meets our needs that is perhaps very productive. It's just dangerous because if things change, droughts become more common, for example, we get a new disease, then we become very vulnerable. In wild species, if we have a situation whereby a population has dropped very, very low and we think, well, we want to bring in um, genetics from elsewhere, introduce animals they can mate with from another population, sometimes this is good. Sometimes, actually, the first population had those genetics for a good reason. They're specifically adapted to those conditions. And if we bring genetics in from our side, they may be less adapted. If we just go on diversity good, then we could be missing out on some very valuable adaptations. You were talking about um, domesticated, uh, particularly plant species that we, you know, we, we like to know that wheat is going to grow in this way to a sort of fairly uniform height so it can be combine harvested. But there is essentially an arc of plant species. Can you tell us a bit about the history of, of the seed bank? One interesting thing about plants is that we can save them from extinction in a very different way because, in theory, if you have seeds, then that plant has not gone extinct. You can, in a very small space, store the future of that plant. This has got a long and complex history and is still going on today, particularly there's a crop wild relatives project to try and collect lots and lots of species that are related to our crops so that maybe these have genetics such as disease resistance that might become useful for our crop species. One particularly interesting person in the history of seed banks is the Russian scientist uh, Nikolai Vavilov. Um, he was born the son of a wealthy merchant in 1887, and he became very interested in plant breeding, studying disease resistance, collecting um, over 250,000 seed samples. He brought them back to Russia for conservation in the Leningrad Seed Bank, initially found great favour with the Russian government, but like so many people, he fell out of favour, died of starvation and was uh, buried in a common prison grave. Seed Bank itself was protected by his colleagues because the Russian food shortages were extremely severe and People wanted to raid those seed banks for food to eat, whereas the guards protected the seeds, some of them um, protecting the seeds, starving to death instead of eating the collection in his seed bank. And that is an act of heroic self-sacrifice to protect this precious cargo for the future. Um, And I found that one of the most moving stories in the book. So... Ecology, conservation, climate protection, this is, after all, very much a, a human endeavour. What what have you learned about the kinds of people who are involved in conservation and those of us who you know, are not directly involved in it? What can we do to support their efforts? 
One of the most amazing things about writing this book was to speak to some very passionate and thoughtful people who are protecting nature in very different ways, often very practical ways. And as individuals, we can support their work, whether it's through financial donations or practical help, but also by starting conversations with conservationists, with our friends, so that we are starting to make conservation decisions a bit more wisely, to think very carefully about, well, what do we want the world to look like? So just having those conversations, whoever they're with, I think that is extremely important. I also think it's very important to really consider our own lifestyles. Lots of the problems that are happening far away are connected to us. For example, I'm speaking to you on my laptop, which has all sorts of precious metals that were mined. These mines in other parts of the world are causing great problems for wildlife. They're leaching pollutants, often causing great problems for people. And I think we really need to connect our lifestyles with conservation issues that are happening around the world. And perhaps it's time to think about, well, what aspects of our consumption are really good for us, are helping our well-being? And when is our consumption detrimental, not just to people and wildlife around the world, but also to ourselves? How can we create a world where we thrive as does the rest of humanity and the rest of nature. I think one of the most uh, compelling arguments in the book is that looking at ourselves as distinct from nature is whatever else we choose to do, that will always be a losing strategy. Absolutely. We cannot exist without nature and nature will very much suffer if we continue on our current trend and do not consider what we're doing. How is it getting across a message where the least of the controversies might be wasps are actually great and bees are overrated? How does it feel uh, stepping into a space that is, by its very nature, quite contentious? Initially, it was quite scary. It became much more natural. And one of the reasons it became more natural was the more I researched both about the science and about the philosophy, I became much more confident in my views because if you enter a conversation willing to learn, ready to adapt, but at the same time very confident, knowing that you've done the research properly, it becomes much easier. And I would definitely say that understanding the environmental philosophy was very key to that. The science is very uncertain, can't answer everything by itself. But once I started to understand the whole picture, I felt much more confident going in. The fact that you weave together both the pure data and the philosophy and ethics makes for an incredibly rich and, and powerful book. So the research that you were doing for this, your, your incredibly broad career, is this research that you were also already doing for other projects? Or was this essentially a sort of blank sheet that you came to? It was more of a blank sheet that I came to than I realised when I started, in that some of the issues, such as the sharing and sparing, I'd been aware of for a long time. I'd been to seminars and conferences and read some papers. I was fairly solid in that. I hadn't realised how much this would take me into areas such as social science, philosophy that were much more new to me. Uh, I am glad that when I started out, I didn't realise this because I think I would have been too daunted to start. 
<laughs> that sounds very familiar to me as well. Um, that you start thinking, aha, this sounds like an interesting question. And then as soon as you start to address that, it reveals so many other questions. Exactly. So what was the timeline of this book like from that initial sort of conception of, I feel like I want to write something on this to actually getting it out? Sometimes I go back to old files and I'm alarmed to see the dates on it. I think it was about 2016 that I first sort of had the idea for a book. As an undergraduate when I was studying biology, this was one of my interests. And looking back, I've had an uneasiness for a very long time. I used to volunteer on nature reserves, doing some practical land management, like getting rid of bracken. And I would always just have the niggle of, why am I doing this? How do I know this is the right thing? In retrospect, the seeds of this book were sown well before I had any idea that I'd ever want to write it. I like the idea of that seed sort of germinating. Like the dandelions in your vegetable patch growing before you've even realised it. <laughs> Absolutely. Although I, I welcome dandelions. Dandelions are a, a great thing for, for insects. And also I'll chuck those buggers in a salad and pretend it's rocket. I mean, I'm not fussy. <laughs> Absolutely. And my guinea pigs love them. Um, we used to cultivate some good dandelions in our vegetable patch. Yeah, I think my neighbours hate me because of how much the seeds go. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pro dandelion. I'm glad to hear it. What would you advise 2019 year if you could wind back the clock a couple of years? In some ways, it was an easy time for me because my book wasn't so much relying on travelling. I was speaking to lots of people on the phone. It was a wonderful way to help me get through those early days of lockdown, which I found quite tough because I was connecting with so many people and I was thinking through so many ideas that kept me inspired at a time that was also quite confusing. In terms of my conclusions for the book, it was also felt really quite relevant the way that the world changed because it showed that we can change, that we are willing to make sacrifices for other people. I didn't stay locked down because I was worried about getting COVID myself. I was worried about other people, particularly older people getting COVID. I was worried about people working in the NHS and what impact that was having on them. It was also a time when lots of people took solace in nature and that hashtag was trending on Twitter. So I really think it was a chance for us to assess what is valuable, realise that nature is one thing that's valuable in our lives and realise that we can change. Uh, I think the next few years will be telling in how that change is going to continue to pan out. Here's hoping we take the lessons that we've learned from the pandemic and also the amazing lessons in this book uh, and take them forward to help build a healthier, more vibrant world. Where can people find you on either Twitter, Instagram, the internet? I have the very imaginative Twitter handle of at Rebecca Nesbitt, also the very imaginative domain name of RebeccaNesbitt.com. And you can search for Tickets for the Ark or Rebecca Nesbitt in the various booksellers. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on Nonfic Pod. Thank you very much. It's been lovely to speak to you.
can really help us by rating, reviewing and sharing Nonfic Pod. Every little helps to build our audience and that means we get to share fantastic non-fiction with more people just like you. And it helps us to keep bringing you the greatest authors and the hottest reads. 